Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be, Praise to, be to Christ. Thanks again, Charlene. So, um, so we're in the middle of a series. It's our, it's our fall series that we've called Love Supreme. No, it is not a series on the works of John Coltrane, even though that would be a lot of fun. Uh, uh, amazing artist that he is. Uh, this is a series about what we're calling the anchor doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, which actually uh, was inaugurated in 1517 A.D., about 500 years ago. So we're, we're celebrating a bit of an anniversary there. And in the middle of that series, we've got a three-part series on what John Calvin called the three offices of Christ, the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And so last week, we, we touched on Christ as our prophet as a truth teller who tells us the truth about God, about the human condition, about the world in which we live, and about the direction that the world is headed. Next week, the, the focus is going to be on Christ as the king, as the sovereign ruler who rules over every square inch of the universe, over every person, every place, everything. There's not a single thing, not a single molecule not a single soul, not a single personality over which Jesus Christ does not reign. So that's next week. But if we only presented Jesus as a prophet, it would overwhelm you. Because Jesus and the prophetic ministry of Jesus and the prophetic ministry of Scripture itself reminds us of the gap between how holy and pure God is, and how broken and sinful and impure we can be, of how strong God is, and and of how weak we are, of how great God is, and of how small we are relative to Him. And if we only presented Jesus as the King of everything, we would be terrified, because the only picture we would have of Him if all he was was a king, is that he is the sovereign lawgiver, and we are the treasonous lawbreakers. But the office of priest, the one that we're focusing on today, is the reassuring office, the one that we need whispering in our ear when we're also talking about and contemplating the offices of prophet and king. It's the less threatening office of Christ that makes the other two offices less threatening as well. See, the office of priest, Jesus being our priest, sets the tone for the truth that the prophet speaks to us because he is the the priest who speaks for us. His tenderness also sets the tone for the king who rules over us because he's also the priest who comes alongside us. And so, Jesus is all three of these things equally and always. 
And so what I want to do is focus on two thoughts today as uh, we look at what the book of Hebrews has to say about Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And those two things are let your guard down and lift your head up because He is your priest. So let your guard down. Jesus is constantly inviting us as our high priest to take our burdens to Him. You may be familiar with that famous statement he makes in Matthew 11 where he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we hear something not unlike that here in verse 10, where the writer says, Let us then with confidence draw near to him in our time of need. And so the Greek word here is parousia, which means boldness confidence, moxie, courage, especially when you're in the presence of someone who has great rank or great power, which was counterintuitive to first century listeners. When you were in the presence of a king or, or you know, somebody of, of high rank or high-ranking official or somebody with a lot of power or a lot of resources or a lot of celebrity… You would approach them timidly and, 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 and with a good bit of fear and, and, and trembling and insecurity. And but, but what's being said here is when you, you approach the King of Kings, when you approach the prophet with a capital P, do it with confidence. Do it with moxie. Do it, in other words, with honesty. So, so a little bit of context here. The book of Hebrews was written by an anonymous author. There, there have been different theologians and scholars who speculated who the author was. But we know who the target audience was, Messianic Jews or Israelites who had come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah or as their Mashiach. And what the letter reveals to us, the, the whole letter of Hebrews, is that they were tired, and many of them were tempted to quit their Christianity and to quit Christ. And there were three reasons for the fatigue that they had. One reason was themselves. They were tired of themselves. If you go to chapter 12 of Hebrews, the writer is encouraging them when he says, in your struggle against sin, don't grow weary. In your struggle against sin. See, because the moment you become a Christian, the moment your life is hidden with Christ in God, a war starts inside of you. The biggest battle for you from that point forward is the battle that goes on inside of you, not the battles that are going on outside of you. And so, so they're weary of that internal battle. They're falling short, and they know it. But another thing that contributes to their fatigue is each other. For the first time in their lives, they've been called to live in community with Gentiles, with non Israelites who had also come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so, all of a sudden, there's this cross-cultural family dynamic that they're, they're called into. And, and, and that means that, that they are now called by Jesus Christ 
into rich, robust, table fellowship kind of community with people who come from different traditions, who speak different languages, who have different politics, different parenting philosophies, different musical tastes, different socioeconomic situations, different dietary habits, and they're all called to live as one. And in fact, that's one of the things that would demonstrate to the world that they belong to Christ. The people who wouldn't otherwise hang out with each other all of a sudden are living as family under Jesus, who breaks dividing walls down. But the third reason why they were fatigued is because of persecution. In their part of the world and in their time in history, and the the book of Hebrews alludes to this repeatedly, to identify with Jesus was costly. To publicly identify with Jesus you would lose economic opportunities, you would be excluded from social situations and networks, uh, you, would, you would not be a candidate for, for the better jobs anymore, and in some situations, your life was at risk, your family was at risk. And so, what the writer is inviting them to do when he says, with confidence, go before the throne, is he's inviting them to own that pain with Him, to own that pain with the high priest, who is not ashamed to call them his sisters and brothers. Verse 15, there's this ongoing pressure of temptation and of trial, and their reality is a reality that is described as weakness. All I have is Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless I look to you for grace. All I have is Christ. And so it's no wonder that in verse 14, he he talks about how they are in need of help, of grace, and, and, and of a mercy that will come to them from a place outside themselves. The writer doesn't say, look within yourself for the strength that you need. He says, look outside of yourself because you have no strength within yourself. And that's why Christ is who He is, and you're invited to be honest about that struggle. Have you ever read A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis? So, it's it's sort of his, you know, vomiting out of his emotions as he's processing the death of his wife, Joy, whom he adored. He, He adored his wife, and he lost her to a violent form of cancer. And It's sort of his language of boldness in the presence of of the great high priest who has great rank and great power. Here's an excerpt from A Grief Observed. Go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. Is this irreverent? Or is there a kind of reverence here that that kind of catches you through the side door? A reverence that communicates, I'm in a real relationship with the God of the universe. It's not happy clappy when things get hard. It's gutsy real. And that's what the writer's inviting, these persecuted, tired of themselves, tired of each other people into is honesty. You know, the prophet's going to come to you and tell you how to live. The priest is going to come to you and say, tell me how you feel. 
And let me walk with you in that. Let me gently remind you not only who you are, but whose you are. Jesus is both prophet and priest. You ever think about the Psalms? I mean, you think C.S. Lewis was bold. Read the Psalms, the prayer book that God has preserved for us to use in our time of need. The 142nd Psalm, hear these words, I pour out my complaint before God. These are holy words, inscripturated words, grafe, it is written, I pour out my complaint before God. I tell my trouble before Him. This is being presented to us as a model prayer. You know, the Psalms, they feel all the feels, don't they? You get high highs, low lows, everything in the middle, full range of human emotions, including lament. Psalm 137, sorrow. 140, anger. 69, fear. 85, longing. 102, confusion. 22, abandonment. 51, guilt and shame. 74, disappointment. 88, depression. Keep going. Be here all day. There's 150 of them. And this, this sort of gutsy processing of pain, of need, of struggle, here's the twist. It's not just when you're experiencing hard circumstances. It's also for those times when you're winning. It's football season right now, and you know, one of the verses that we hear quoted during football season and basketball season and other seasons is what? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And what that, what that typically means is we're going to win because Jesus is going to help us win. We're going to score the touchdown or we're going to get the slam dunk because Jesus is going to help us. And then when we do, we're going to acknowledge that by doing a cross and pointing to heaven and so on. But how many times when, you've been, when, 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 when somebody is sacked in their own end zone, and loses two points, or, or when they're, you know, they're, they're, they're tackled so hard that, that, that their knee gets, you know, sort of dislocated, or how many times when somebody misses the dunk and loses the game because they were showing off a little bit too much, do you see this, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? What we don't understand is that every part of the Bible comes to us in a context, and in this context, Paul was not winning. He was in jail when he wrote these words. Dealing with a thorn in the flesh, a chronic illness, a chronic affliction that also threw him into emotional turmoil. It's from that context that he says, I've learned to learn the secret of contentment. I'm content when I'm losing. I'm content, he says, when I'm living in want. When I'm losing, we'll be a little bit more on that in a moment. But where I want to camp out here for just the next couple of minutes is, Paul also says, I've learned the secret of contentment when I'm winning. When I'm living in plenty, I've learned how to be content then and there also. Remember what Jesus says, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle? It is hard to be rich and happy, in other words. It is hard to have a whole lot and to be winning all the time and have joy. Oftentimes, paradoxically, those two things can work against each other. So, Madeline Levine is this very well-known author and psychiatrist from the San Francisco Bay Area. Her specialty 
is at-risk teenagers. And one of the things that she says in her book called The Price of Privilege is that anxiety and depression and suicide rates among teenagers from affluent homes, from comfortable affluent homes, is three times the national average. But you don't just have to be young or, or a teenager to have these struggles. You know, I'm, I'm, I think it's safe to say that I might be going through what, what, what you could call a middle-aged prosperity crisis. I'm in my 40s, toward, toward the end of my 40s. I'm still young enough to be able to enjoy things. But I'm also old enough to realize that those things that I get to enjoy have a shelf life that I'm leaking all the time. You know, if, 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 if all of this, the sum of, of the, the happy, victorious, luxurious, comfortable things in my life were water, it's dripping out of my body every day, and it's got an expiration date. I was at the Ryman just last night. Oh, you know, on that note, middle-aged prosperity crisis, I realize that some of you still think I'm a whippersnapper. And so, you're tuning me out right now like you're a young man. You don't know what it's like to, you know, be thinking about, you know, old guy things. You, you might be right, but there are also people here that, that think I'm really old. Um, you know, was, we were having some people over for dinner the other night a couple weeks ago, and their daughter, who's, you know, somewhere around five or six years old, when it was time for her to go, she whisks right by me and says, see you later, old man. And uh, so I don't quite know where I fit generationally, so just cut me some slack, whatever category you'd put me in. But last night I'm at the Ryman Auditorium, one of the top three music venues in the world, most would say. And I'm listening to one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Jason Isbell, last night. I'm thinking, man, this is such a glorious moment. Greatest venue, such a terrific songwriter. You know, Tom, some of you know Tom Douglas, one of our elders. He's like the father of songwriters in Nashville right now. Told me this morning when I visited in town, told me this morning, Jason Isbell's the best singer-songwriter that there is right now. And so just to get a little bit of confirmation... And so I'm enjoying that last night, and then Jason Isbell, right in the middle of it, ruined the experience for me when he sang hauntingly his song, If We Were Vampires. And you know, the thing about vampires is they're creepy, but they get to live forever. And it was a love song to his wife, who's standing right next to him playing violin on the song. It was stunning. And, and, and essentially, the message of the song is, I wish that we could last forever. I wish that we could last forever. And so here's how the chorus goes. It's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together, but one day I'll be gone, or one day you'll be gone. I'm sitting with my wife the other night at a beautiful, you know, restaurant, enjoying things that only a small few people in the world get to enjoy. And, and I'm looking at her, and I'm thinking to myself, I, I'm getting to do things now in ministry that I never dreamed I'd get to do. I mean, if you look at my life, you, you would think, man, that, that guy is fulfilled. 
So he gets to pastor these people. He gets to work with this team. He gets to do this and this and this. And, and I, just, I looked at my wife and I said, in 50 years, do you think we're going to matter? Will the world be any better because we were here doing the things that we're doing right now? You know, I think what, what I'm thinking in that moment, what Madeline Levine was certainly writing about when she's talking about teenagers, the middle-aged prosperity crisis, whatever the crisis is, whatever the need is, the things we cling to are slippery. They're slippery. Every marriage is going to end with somebody weeping. You're making a kill, you're, you're killing it in your career. Eventually, you're going to retire, either voluntarily or somebody's going to force you to retire. Physically fit, you're going to, trust me, you're going to get wrinkled, you're going to get gray, you're going to have joint pain, you're going to have insomnia, you're going to have fatigue, you're going to lose your memory. PhDs, you're going to lose your memory. And so what this high priest invites us to do is get honest. Whether young or old, every single time is your time of need. Every single season, every single moment of your life is your time of need. And so your greatest need is for a high priest who will deliver to you time and time again faithfully grace, mercy, and help. Which brings me to the second thought, and that is lift your head up. Because as a Christian, you have that high priest that you need. Jesus gets it, and He gets you, and He is with you in whatever you are in. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, continuing with the honesty theme, our, our, our CPC student ministry leaders conducted a survey among middle school and high school students in the last couple of weeks. And it was one question, it was this, Jesus lived in the first century. What are some things that you have to deal with that he did not have to deal with? And here, here's some of the answers. Jesus didn't have to deal with struggles related to technology like smartphones and television. He didn't have to deal with FOMO and things like building and keeping and protecting your reputation on social media. He didn't have to deal with the threat of online bullying and exclusion. He didn't have to deal with the temptation of online pornography. He didn't have to worry about school and grades. He didn't have to worry about keeping up with fashion trends and balancing the hectic life of school and sports. He didn't have to worry about things like dating and breakups and having your heart broken. And what I love about these answers is they are so honest. They're, they're willing to go there. They're willing to come with boldness and confidence and say the things that are being felt so deeply. Does Jesus really get me? That's what's being said by honest-hearted teenagers. Does he get social rejection? Does he get heartbreak? Does he get addiction and mental illness? Does he get loneliness? We don't just need a prophet to tell us the way things are. We don't just need a king to say, these are the rules, just keep them. We need somebody who understands, who gets it, who comes alongside, who gives us a witness for our journey. You ever see that uh, skit, Bob Newhart, he's a therapist. There's this woman who comes in, 
And he basically says, here's how I do things. I charge $5 for the first five minutes, and after that, I don't charge anything. And she's like, oh, this is so wonderful. And then she starts confiding in him. And he has one answer for every problem. Stop it. Stop it. You know, she comes to him and says, I, I, I live this, the, with this constant fear that somebody's going to bury me alive in a box. Stop it. I'm bulimic. I, I'm constantly forcing myself to eject the food that I eat. Stop it. I'm self-destructive with men. Stop it. I wash my hands obsessively. Well, that's okay. You don't want to get germs, he says. I'm afraid to drive a car. Well, stop it. You need to get places, don't you? Stop it. Stop it. But here's the problem with that. And, and it's so funny because it's so crazy to think of therapy like that. But sometimes we think that's the kind of God we have, right? Who just is up there saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. Who's above us, but not with us. In comes Jesus, the great high priest, who says to us, there's a situation and there's a heart issue. Yeah, I've never been on social media, but I know what it's like to be bullied. I know what it's like to be left out. I know what it's like to be a person of no reputation and have no likes and follows. I, I know the feeling associated with that. In the same way that somebody who is addicted to cocaine and going through, through therapy uh, and, and a healing process for cocaine understands the person who's addicted to other things like porn and retail therapy and, 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 and overeating and addicted to undereating and to opioids and so on. That addict understands addictions that that addict doesn't have because that addict understands addiction. Christ is the same way. He's not unable to sympathize. He's had his heart broken. His wife his bride breaks up with him every single day. You and me, we break up with him every single day. His Father in heaven forsook him. Well, he didn't have online porn to deal with. Well, he had prostitutes coming to him all the time saying, help me, sir. Now, he didn't know the pressure of making good grades and dressing right. Well, the bar was set so high for him. It says right here, he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin because he had to be without sin in order for this whole arrangement to work for us. You see, he gets it and he's with you in it. The priest provides the tenderness to his kingliness and the, and the, and the withness to his propheticness. He's all three at the same time always. But the other thing is he speaks for us. In your time of need, it says, our high priest has mercy and grace. The word here for grace is caritas. We get our word charity from this. This means that, that our position before him as we receive what he has come to give is one of open-handed receptivity as he does all the giving and we do all the receiving. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, join with power. With open-handed love, He comes to us with acceptance and favor when we don't deserve it. That's the gospel arrangement. That's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion and every other philosophy that ever existed. How does it play out? 
1 John 2, as high priest, it tells us that he's an advocate for us with the Father. He's like our attorney, and he always wins. He's our defense attorney. And, and the, way, the reason why he always wins is he presents his record as if it were ours to the judge who's sitting on the bench saying, not guilty, and, and then sends Jesus out as the scapegoat to carry our sentence for us. And Hebrews 7.25, this lovely promise that he always lives, Jesus does, to intercede for us. He's the high priest who speaks for the people on behalf of the people at the king's judgment seat. Your defender, always. From the judgments of the prophet and from the fierceness and prosecution of the king, Jesus is always your defender as your priest. There's never been a moment as a Christian that you have not been fully embraced by Him, even in your most hypocritical moments. I mean, think about this. Since Bible times, there have been so many embarrassing realities on public display from the Christian world. Martin Luther, who we celebrate during Reformation season, was an anti-Semite at certain points of his life, spoke very, in very prejudiced ways against the Jews. John Calvin participated in burning a man at the stake because he had incorrect theology. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves until, until he died. All duplicitous people since biblical times. But there's also the people in the Bible. Jacob, a liar. David, who abused his power, got into bed with the wrong woman, killed his own friend to cover it up. Rahab, a prostitute. Peter, a duplicitous man who betrayed Jesus three times, as well as declaring how loyal he would be even if everybody else forsook him. And yet God used these people to shake the earth. God is still shaking the earth through the life of these people. Duplicitous people. You see, because, and this is here to encourage us, even that reality about the Bible and about how God works through messed up people and jacked up people, that is part of the priestly function of Christ, that you don't have to have your act together to matter. Damaged does not mean done. I love what Anne Lamott said, it's okay to realize that you're crazy and very damaged because all the best people are. Or Brennan Manning, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this and you can Take this to the table of Jesus with you. Brennan Manning, my deepest awareness of myself as a Christian is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ, and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Behold the priestly ministry of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, You are the way. You are a good counselor. You are a good therapist. You empathize with us, Lord. You get into it with us and sympathize with our weakness, but you don't do it in a, hey, let me come in here and be a victim with you sort of way. Instead, you come in as somebody who is further down the road than we are in the fight against weakness and in the fight against darkness even though you never committed a sin, you know what it's like to fight against temptation. You have felt all the feels. The Psalms, Lord Jesus, are ultimately your prayers, now gifted to us, so that through your grace we can 
approach with boldness and confidence, a throne of great rank and great power where we can find grace and mercy in our time of need from our great high priest. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.